Good morning, Village Church. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village. I'm glad to be with you um, this morning. If you're a guest with us, we have been in the book of 1 Peter, as you just saw, and we are going through a series called Helpful Wisdom for Hard Days. Helpful Wisdom for Hard Days. And so um, here's some wisdom for you this morning from a theologian, G.K. Chesterton. This is Helpful Wisdom for Hard Days um, as well. G.K. Chesterton said this, Jesus promised his disciples three things. Three things. That they would be fearlessly, or completely fearless rather, completely fearless, that they would be absurdly happy, and that they would be in constant trouble. <laughs> completely fearless, absurdly happy, constant trouble, right? It sounds like, <laughs> sounds like me in high school, right? That, that sounds, like, sounds like me in high school, and that that is what Jesus promised his disciples. And if you think about it, it's, it's true. This is what Jesus said, that they would be completely fearless. Matter of fact, Jesus told them to live so fearlessly that they would not fear those who can only kill the body, merely kill the body, Jesus told them. Luke records it. Jesus told them that he wanted them to be absurdly happy. Jesus said, I'm telling you these things so that my joy will be in you and that so your joy will be full or complete. Jesus wanted them to live a life that was absurdly happy and filled with joy. And Jesus told them that they would be in constant trouble. Jesus told his disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Fearlessness, joy, and trouble. And do you see what, what Chesterton is doing here? Fearlessness, joy, and trouble. What Chesterton is getting at is he's trying to show us that the joyful Christian life that, that's, that's there in the middle, the joyful Christian life, the absurd happiness of the Christian life is lived in between the completely fearless life that we live when we're full of faith and, and the kind of trouble that that kind of life can get us into in the world. That the joyful Christian life is lived in the tension of those things. It's lived in between those two things. The completely fearless life that's filled with faith and the kind of trouble that that kind of life might get us into in the world like being left out of social circles for no other reason than that we won't actually go along with blatant immorality or, or being passed up for a project at work or a promotion. And, and for no other reason than that we will operate with complete integrity and that's what's required. Like, um, like actually getting a lesser grade on a paper. There are so many college students here this morning, and, and there have been, and so many of them actually are not here this morning because they're with their families and they're leaving. But we've had this incredible season with so many of you. And I just want to pause and say um, to, to all the college students, you are and have been such a blessing to our church. And many of you go to Biola University where, um, where you, your professors actually want to hear what you have to say. But I know many of you who are college students go to school um, in, in a place where you want to say a certain thing, but your professor wants you to say another thing. And, and it looks like that, like getting a lesser grade for doing better work on a paper because you won't say what your professor wants you to say. Or like getting trolled or canceled on social media for no other reason that you're just trying to share what Jesus says about a certain thing in culture. Or like being blamed by 
by media and by even governments for, well, for thwarting the progress of culture, not for no other reason than, than not what we do as Christians and the way we help society as Christians, but just merely for the things we say we believe. You might be thinking, <laughs> where's the joy in this kind of constant trouble? Like, that's the kind of trouble I want to stay out of. Where is the joy in this constant trouble? And where's the wisdom in that? And Peter knows that Christians will ask that question. And so he answers the question, and he starts by doing it in verse 12, where he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus said this is going to happen. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter, t Peter tells us that wisdom says we can have joy even in unjust suffering because it's an evidence of our salvation. He says we can have joy even in the midst of unjust suffering because insofar as it is an evidence of our salvation. Like when we can have joy in all of the things that I just mentioned and more, it, it proves that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. If you're a person and you experience those things and you can maintain joy, even in the midst of those things, it is a proof, it is an evidence that Christ is in you, that the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, and that you stand in Christ. This is what it means when he says, share in his sufferings. That word share is connected to a doctrine that theologians call union with Christ. And, and basically what union with Christ means is a doctrine in the Bible, as theologians talk about it, is that we are united together with Christ so that everything that is his is ours because now we are in him and he is in us. And that is a fantastic reality. And it's an incredible doctrine to study and to proclaim and to talk about that, that everything that is Christ, all of the riches and the glory that is Christ is ours because we're in Christ. But but the kind of challenging thing about this doctrine as well is we don't, we don't get to pick and choose the things that we share with Christ. That because we are united together with Christ, we share everything with him, including his sufferings. We're united with him in his death before we're united with him in his resurrection. And yes, we are united with Christ in his joys, but we're also united with him in his sorrows. And yes, we're united with Christ in his fame and his glory and his renown, but we're also united with him in his, well, the disdain that the world may have for him in ways and at times. I think what Peter's saying is our desire and our ability to rejoice even in the midst of unjust suffering and persecutions, it proves that we have a saving kind of faith, not just a professing kind of faith. And I want you to hear that clearly this morning. It's one of the proofs that we have a saving, real kind of faith, not just a professing kind of faith. And actually, Peter knows something about this because Peter was around when Jesus talked with his disciples about the difference between a saving kind of faith and a professing kind of faith. Jesus often did this um, in straight teachings, but most often did this through parables. And the parable of the sower reminds us of this. Matter of fact, Jesus takes a long time explaining the parable of the sower, and Matthew's gospel records it, and, 
And, and it draws our, our attention to the fact that this is a really important parable, so important that actually Jesus took time to explain it line by line to his disciples. And as he's doing that, he tells them what the seed on the rocky ground was about. In verse 20 of Matthew 13, it says, After what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. But he endures for a while. And when, when tribulations or persecutions arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. See, people that have a professing faith in Jesus, they receive the good news about Jesus that you can find forgiveness of your sins. Who doesn't want forgiveness of sin? We all know we have it. But they don't want to receive the hard news about following Jesus that we receive all of him, including the hard parts, like potentially suffering unjustly like he did. People who have a saving kind of faith, they, they receive the good news of the forgiveness of sins that we can find in Jesus and the good life that he has for us and all that he has for us, including the suffering, and we know that it will make us something more like him, and people who have saving kind of faith can have joy in that because it reminds them that they have true Real, genuine, saving faith. And what, what could be more important than that? If you're not yet a Christian this morning, you're thinking, and you want me to be a Christian. <laughs> you people are nuts. You're kind of nuts. You, you, you're talking about like, you're talking about, you're the kind of people that want to have joy when people like persecute you even unjustly. Like that's what the Christian life is about. And I want to say, yeah, that's part of what the Christian life includes. And you might even be a Christian, you know, and thinking, Matt, you're nuts. I want to avoid that. Like I want a life that's like, fearlessly, you know, that, that's completely fearless. And I, I mostly want a life that's absurdly happy. <laughs> but the, like, constant trouble thing, like, <laughs> I don't really want that. I don't really want that. Peter knows. Peter knows that. And so Peter says, rejoice and be glad. What, what this really meaning is rejoice with great spiritual rejoicing. When, when Peter says rejoice and be glad, he's saying rejoice with great spiritual rejoicing. This is not the kind of thing where we rejoice in like the pain and the persecution just for the sake of it. That's weird. No one even does that. But we rejoice in, in a spiritual sense that it reminds us that we have true, saving, lasting, genuine faith. And this is what Oswald Chambers said in a devotional once, and I know I've shared with you, it with you before. I want to share it with you this morning because it just makes sense in this context. He says, to choose to suffer means that there's something entirely wrong. Listen, if you want to cause pain to yourself, you should go see someone, right? That's not, no one does that. But to choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is an entirely different thing. And that's the thing that Peter's talking about this morning. Where's the joy in this kind of constant trouble? Where is the wisdom in this? Well, Peter shares the second line of wisdom, and it's in verse 14, where he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are, here it is, you are blessed. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so here's sort of the second drop of wisdom from Peter this morning, that wisdom says we can have joy even in unjust suffering, because it's an evidence of the Spirit in our lives. It's the evidence of God's Spirit on our lives, in our lives, and at work through our lives. Peter says that as Christians, we can not only rejoice in unsuffering, but he tell, in unjust suffering, but he tells us it's actually a blessing. 
You might say, well, how is this a blessing? And Peter says, well, because, because the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit is on us. It, 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 it's, it's on us. The weight of God's Holy Spirit is on our lives. This is what the word glory means. It means weightiness. When the Bible talks about this idea of glory, it talks about the idea of God having glory, that, that he is weighty, that his life has substance. That his life has substance. The, the picture you can have in your mind is a, the, the difference between a beanbag and like a, like a sandbag, right? Like, you ever been in a beanbag and it's just filled with those like poofy little balls, right? And if you, it gets ripped, they all kind of fly out like, like it does when you have a package that you open from Amazon sometime. You're like, oh man, all those things get everywhere. They're just so light and fluffy. There's no substance. There's nothing to it. And yet the weight of a sandbag, especially when, when it's wet and it's weighted down, it's, it's so substantive. It's not moved. This is the kind of life that, that God wants for us. And this is the kind of life that God has for us. It, because it's the kind of life that, that Jesus lived. A life of weightiness, of substance. And I believe that actually Peter's pointing to Jesus. He's talking about Jesus here. He's, he, he wants us to see the weighty life that Jesus lived. And the weighty lives that we can live when we follow Jesus. I think he's probably thinking of a passage like Isaiah 11. Where it says, there shall come forth a root or a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What Peter is saying is that when we suffer simply for being Christians, because we continue to profess Jesus and we continue to, to follow Jesus, no matter what, the weight to our life is something like the weight of the life of Jesus. And who has ever lived a weightier life than Jesus Christ? <laughs> even non-Christians know that. Even the world knows that. Everyone knows that Jesus Christ is the central person in all of human history. Everybody knows that. Most people don't even debate that if they're intellectually honest. Jesus Christ is at the center of human history. There's literally no one who has lived a weightier life than him. Let me ask you a question. Who are the Christians that you know that have lived the weightiest lives? Who are the Christians that you know that have lived the weightiest lives? Their lives are lived completely, they are completely fearless. And they are absurdly happy and joyful. And they're kind of in constant trouble, right? Do you, do you know any Christians like that? Right now, most of you are trying to think of someone. And I, I think that's the reason. The reason is we, we actually don't know very many people like that. Kind of like the, the amount of friends that you have that you sort of count on your hand, like the friends that are friends for life, you can count those people on your hand. I think in a similar way as we're thinking, what Christians do we know that live that kind of life? Completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. Well, there's not a lot of people in my mind. I, I'm thinking of a few of them right now. One of them is a guy named Lyle, who's my spiritual father. He is completely fearless. Lyle goes and ministers to pastors and missionaries in the most dangerous places in the world. Like when no one wanted to go to Iraq years ago, that's where he was. When people didn't want to go to Afghanistan, that's where he was. When people want to avoid going to Indonesia, that's where he spends his time. 
if you know Lao, you, there's good waves there too. But like, there, there, there's, it's a dangerous place, Indonesia, right? Like he goes to the most, he is completely fearless. He is absurdly happy. He's always filled with joy. He kind of walks like this, you know, it's like he kind of has a hop even in his step. And he kind of is in constant trouble, but it doesn't bother him. Even when I was a youth student and an intern, like we would go into things that I thought were dangerous. And he's like, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Like he, does, he doesn't worry about the trouble. He just lives fearlessly and he's absurdly happy in Jesus. And he doesn't even almost think about the trouble. I'm thinking about back of my mind of a guy named Gib Martin. I know I've mentioned you guys. Another one of my mentors who pastored a, a, a church in one of the most liberal and, and, and really ungodly cities in our country um, in many ways. And uh, he did it for 45 years. And in that city, he, he started one of the first, you know, food banks and one of the first drug rehab centers and one of the first shelters. I mean, he poured his life into serving the people in that community he was completely fearless, living his Christian life, proclaiming the gospel, laying the groundwork for a movement that would happen there years and decades later. He was absurdly a happy man, so joyful. And he was in constant trouble, even though he served his city in these practical and incredible ways and sowed in the lives of all these people. They didn't like him, not for what he did. He did amazing things just simply for what he believed. He was in constant trouble in that place as he lived his constantly fearless life. There was a guy in our church named Paul I. When I first came to the Village Church to replant this church many years ago, there was a, a man named Paul I from Vietnam. And Paul is basically like, kind of like the Apostle Paul to Vietnam. Like he's traveled all over Vietnam planting churches, hundreds of churches. The government kicked him out. He came to the United States. And when one of our presidents renegotiated, he went back to continue planting churches. He is a fearless man who is filled with joy. And he is literally always in trouble, like in jail trouble. I don't know who else I know. Just made me think, like, what kind of weight does my life have? Am I living completely fearlessly? Is my life filled absurdly with joy in Christ? And do I find myself in sort of trouble every now and then? Because my life, the kind of life I'm leading in Christ leads me there. There are other ways that we can suffer that actually are not evidences that, that the Spirit of God rests on our life and, 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 and is really moving in and through our life in a, in a weighty kind of way. And Peter just pauses for a moment to talk about that just in one verse, in verse 15. Look at it with me. He says, but... Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, <laughs> um, some, some Christians in Peter's day, like our day, were, were suffering and acting in a way that, that weren't really spirit-empowered or spirit-led. And, and maybe they were blaming others for the suffering that they were experiencing because they were professing Christians. Now, it's unlikely that any of them were actually murderers and thieves, Right? So he's like, don't suffer for being a murderer or a thief. So anyone in here thinking about those two things, right? Very unlikely, I hope, in here. As unlikely, I think, Peter's audience. Which then Peter goes on to mention this word evildoers, which is kind of a junk drawer term for all kinds of evil. But like, I'm assuming that most of the people sitting here this morning aren't just thinking like, how can I go and do evil? Evil, right? Like, what can I do to get out there and do evil? Like, 
more than likely, I think what Peter's doing is trying to draw attention to the last word, which is meddlers. It's kind of contrast I think he's trying to draw. It's like, look, you're not going to go murder someone or steal something or just sort of be thinking in your mind how you can do evil. But, but there are some people, I think, in Peter's context that were being persecuted because they were Christians, because they were meddlers. They were the kind of people that were just in everyone's business, meddling things that were not their personal concern and then judging people for it. Meddling things that were not their personal concern and then judging people for it. And I'm not sure that's what God wants us to be doing. Matter of fact, Peter, I think, draws attention to this on, for, on purpose for a reason. And this is the opposite of what actually guys like Paul tell a church like the church in Corinth, which was, was steeped in this culture. Paul said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone that bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those outside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. I, I think what Peter's probably getting at this morning is something like this. There is a difference between meddling in someone's life and caring about someone's life. And it's pretty easy to tell the difference. You know, it's kind of like if you have a kid, if you have a little kid, and you're trying to, like, snow them, like, kids are perceptive, are they not? <laughs> and as they grow up, oddly enough, teenagers become even more perceptive. Like, I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and if you try to fool teenagers, like, they know. They know you're disingenuine. Listen, as Christians, when we meddle in people's lives and we don't actually care about their lives, they understand that. People are not dumb. They know. They know when we're meddling in their lives when we don't actually care about their lives, and that's a shame. And so I think what Peter's saying is don't, don't do that. Like we should be the kind of Christians that, that actually care about people's lives, and we come and get involved in the things of their lives, not because we want to meddle, but because we actually care, and we know Jesus can help. Amen? After calling this out, Peter actually calls out an immediate contrast, and then he makes, he gives a, a caution. We're going to start with the contrast because that's where Peter starts in verse 16 where he says, yet, so don't suffer as these things, mo mostly the meddling, right? <laughs> yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. So when Peter's saying glorify God in that name, he's saying glorify God in what name? In the name Christian which in Peter's day was a pejorative word. They called people Christians to make fun of them because Christ hung on a cross. And so they used it in a pejorative way. And what he's saying is don't be ashamed of that. If you suffer unjustly like Jesus, don't be ashamed of that. But let him, that person glorify God in that name, in being called a Christian. A Christian literally means follower of Christ, or it means little Christ. It means that we are living our lives in a way that models the life of Jesus. And then when people look at us, they're like, yeah, that's a little Christ. That's like an image of Christ in a sense. That's a follower of Christ, of Jesus. And if we are suffering because we're meddling people's lives and not caring for people's lives, as I've already said, we should kind of be ashamed of ourselves. Like that's not, because that's not what Jesus is doing. 
but, if, but Jesus had his harshest words, actually, for the people that did that. The, the self-righteous Pharisees who were always meddling in other people's lives, their own lives filled with sin. And by the way, didn't really look like they cared about the lives of other people very much at all, actually. Jesus has his harshest words for them. But if we're suffering because we're meddling in people's lives, not caring for them, as I said, we should be kind of ashamed of ourselves. But if we're suffering because we're following Christ, because we are followers of Christ or acting like little Christ, then when people look at our life, they're like, that's like the life of Jesus who did care for people, by the way, and who did get involved in their lives, not to meddle, but to help and to come alongside and to call them to repentance and to a different kind of life. That's the contrast. Now, now here's the caution, verses 17 to 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You know, there's actually an argument in the language here that, that this term household of God can actually mean house of God. So when we talk about the church, we always say the church is not a building, the church is a people. It's, the, it's a family, it's the household of God. And that is true. But, but it's also true that, that there is a building and there is an argument in the language here and, and I, I think it's pretty good that, that this could actually be translated house of God. So let judgment begin in the house of God, literally in the building, in the gathering place. Like in that time it was the temple, right? The actual building, the gathering place. And I think there are people that are in the building, people that come in the building where God's people gather that actually might not be part of God's household. They're in the house of God, the building, but they might not be part of the household of God. Theologians have said this is the difference between the visible and the invisible church. Right? Like the, the people that are in seats in any church on a Sunday morning might not actually be in Christ in their lives. But they have a professing kind of faith, but not a saving kind of faith. They, they may be the kind of people that like, say like, yeah, I want forgiveness of my sins and I want to go to heaven, but I don't, <laughs> I don't want anything to do with the trouble over here. You might say, well, how would we know? How would I know if I'm like sitting in a seat as, as part of the visible or the invisible, the real, the actual church? I think what Peter's saying is people that respond to unjust suffering with joy... <laughs> They're part of the invisible church. They're part of the people that, that, that you kind of can't see it on the, on the outside, but in a sense you can through, through the response to unjust suffering. They respond with joy. The spirit of Christ rests on them. They're in. It's really scary times that we live in. Barna doing a research survey and I was talking about it with some pastors the other day. It's like, is this still true that 30% of the people that left the church during COVID have not returned? Like when all of that woke stuff happened and all of, the, all of the mayhem and all of the divisiveness in our culture and people are like, yeah, I kind of don't, I don't want the, like the constant trouble over here. And like there are all kinds of reasons people don't return, but one of them is that people just aren't returning because, well, maybe they were, they were never part. Uh, they were in the building but not in Christ. And they're like, yeah, I, I don't want that trouble part over there. It's, a, it's an interesting time that we live in. And it's not something that I or we want for anyone in this, <laughs> in this building. Undeserving and unjust suffering, I think what Peter's saying, it's the plumb line that will test 
who is really his. It's not like Peter's just saying this on his own. Jesus said a similar thing. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all kinds of people speak well of you. When all people, rather, speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Look, Peter's told us a couple weeks ago that, that all of us may not endure this kind of unjust suffering, but, but he's telling us that some of us may. And actually, in our context, in some ways, we, I think it's pretty much guaranteed that we will, to some degree or another. And if we don't experience any kind of unjust suffering because we are Christians, following the example of Jesus, doing the things that Jesus told us to do, living our lives like he said, and proclaiming the things he told us to proclaim, if all people always speak well of us, we might not actually be following the example of Jesus. We might just be making up for ourselves a, a Jesus that we want for ourselves. Um, I've called them over the years the Jesus of Orange County, right? This is actually the first sermon I ever preached in this church. I preached a sermon out of Mark chapter 1 and 2, juxtaposing Jesus of Nazareth with Jesus of Orange County. And I got to tell you, they're two different people. The Jesus of Orange County that we make in our own mind is rich and full and casual and safe. Just like Jesus said, rich and full and casual and safe. Remember Chesterton said, Jesus promised his disciples three things. They'd be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. And Orange County Christianity is not completely fearless. It's more generally fearful. Orange County Christians are fearful. They're afraid of persecution. And it's, it's not in constant trouble. Actually, we're more constantly safe. We always want safety. And Orange County Christians, I'm just telling you because I've, I've, I've lived here my whole life, we're, we're not absurdly happy. We're just pretty superficially happy. And when things go wrong, we, we get fairly unhappy. And if you're not yet a Christian, you're probably saying, that's what I'm saying. I've been looking at Christians, and too many people that I know that say they're Christians and go to church, they, they kind of don't act like it. They're not, I mean, they're not, I, don't, I wouldn't describe them as like completely fearless and absurdly happy and in constant trouble, which is kind of one of the reasons I'm not sure if I want to do this. And I'm really glad, like, you're, you're calling them out. And I just want to say, like, yeah, the, the Bible's an equal opportunity, like, call her outer. You know, like, it'll call us all out. It's calling Christians out this morning. And I, and I got to tell you, if you're not yet a Christian, as humbly and as gently as I can say it, it's calling you out too. That's what he says. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous cares to be saved, what will become the, out, the, the, what will be of the ungodly and of the sinner? What Peter's saying this morning is that, yeah, God, 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 has just, God is a just God. He is loving and he is just. Because he's loving, he has to be just. And he judges sin because it destroys our lives and the lives of other people. And it destroys our relationship with him. And in the life of a Christian, God's judgment is sort of a, it's a refining kind. It's, it's a disciplining kind. It's meant to refine us and discipline us. But if you're not yet a Christian, like, God also judges in another way, which is kind of a condemning kind of, of, of judgment. Like, 
You might say, well, God condemns us. I say, no, 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 actually that's what Jesus says. We condemn ourselves already. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. This is what Jesus said. But in order that the world might be saved through him. And you're saying, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. No, he didn't. But, but this is what he continues to say. But whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. See, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn us because we've already done that for ourselves. We've already proven that our lives are filled with sin, that we do and say and think things that destroy our lives and lives of other people. That all the, the chaos that's going on in the world today, like, that's not God's fault. That's ours. We, we, we're, we've done that. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That we've said, no, no, we, we've not believed that Jesus is the one that is the solution to all these things. And so if you're not yet a Christian, as Christians, we're just saying, like, yeah, that's where we were too. That's like, the Bible says, and such were some of you. Like, yeah, living a life that was condemned. Not, we're just condemning ourselves. I just want to say really quickly, if you're not yet a Christian, as Christians, we believe that, that Jesus, God, God knows this. God, God knows that we're in a place of condemnation. So God does something about it. He sends his son, Jesus. And Jesus lives a life that we could never live, a perfectly sinless life before God on our behalf. That's what Christians believe. And that he died on the cross and in our place and for our sins, that, that God has to judge sin. And Christians believe that God did that by placing all of his judgment for our sin on Jesus on the cross. And that later Jesus, three days later, rose to give us a life we could never have otherwise, a life that's free from sin, <laughs> forgiven, and now free to follow him and, and to live this absurdly joyful, happy life, fearless life in him. And just let the consequences be what they may. And this morning, we would just invite you to Jesus. We would invite you to that completely fearless, absurdly happy, <laughs> kind of sometimes in trouble kind of life. It's beautiful. It's the life Jesus has for his people. There's one more place Peter says we can find joy in the midst of suffering. And it's going to come at us quick and we're going to end our time together. Verse 19. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The third little drop of wisdom that Peter has for us is that wisdom says we can have joy in unjust suffering because it's an evidence of the sustaining power of God in our lives. It's an evidence of the sustaining power of God in our lives. Listen, all of this to say, we started talking about the evidence of salvation. Peter could have said Savior, and in your mind you're thinking he should have said Savior. We're talking about salvation. Why doesn't he say Savior? He says Creator. Well, he says it on purpose. Again, the Bible doesn't highlight things and underlight things, but it has little little techniques that draw our attention to things. Peter's trying to draw our attention to the fact that he is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the one that's going to sustain us through. If we will live a life that's completely fearless and filled with faith, trusting Jesus and all that he said, it will bring us an absurdly happy, joyful Christian life. And when we <laughs> find ourselves in some constant trouble, that he will sustain us and he will hold us and he will carry us through. The idea here is that Jesus is the creator, the one that holds all of life together. And if Jesus can hold all of life together, he can hold all of your life together. Even in the midst of unjust suffering. And I think that's our good news this morning is that Jesus was kept by God through his suffering and Jesus will keep us even through our suffering. And I hope that's good news for you this morning.
Would you pray with me? Thank you for your word this morning, Lord, that reminds us that, um, that when we're in these times of unjust suffering, that it is an evidence that we are in, in you and you are in us. And, and, and that's, that's a joyful thing to think about. And we thank you for promising things to us and for guys like Chesterton who remind us that the kind of life you call us into is, I mean, is a fearless life. I want to live a fearless life. And I, and I believe the people in this room, they, they do. I, I want to live a life that's absurdly happy and joyful in you. And I believe that's true of everyone here. And I pray you'd help us not to mind if we're in a little bit or even constant trouble. We'll trust you to care for us. We'll trust you to hold us. We'll trust you to keep us. We'll trust you to sustain us. It's an exciting life, Lord, that you'd have for us, even in the midst of hard things. I pray you'd help us to see it this morning and to give you glory for it, glory for it this morning. I ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.